You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage is in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." You may be seated. Thank you, Don. Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Thanks for being here on Christmas morning and enduring the very frigid cold to gather with us. So we've been preaching through John's Gospel on Sunday mornings, and so we come to a passage today that's just the next one up, and I know it's Christmas, and this, you know, this passage isn't typically a Christmas sermon, but I'm going to try to make a Christmas spin on it by saying this. This passage summarizes and really teaches us the reason why Jesus came, the reason why he was sent, and it's this. You ready? To save us from ourselves. Jesus came to save us primarily from our own selves. So let's start by seeing what Jesus wants from us, then what we typically want from him, and then how he responds to us. All right, so this this story Don just read it. You know what the story is. Jesus makes this whip, clears the temple, overturns the tables with the money on it. He is outraged in this scene, and uh, obviously the activity in this temple, it's intense. And when you really think about it, I mean, he makes a whip. He drives out all the animals. He goes to each table and flips them over. That's a deliberative, long process. It would be very obvious. It would be very uh, dramatic. It would be seen and observable, like this isn't subtle. This is very, very in your face. And Jesus tells us in verse 16 the reason why he's doing all of this. What, what's he passionate about? What's driving him to make this scene? Look at verse 16. It says, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, 
Uh, I looked into this a little bit, did some historical studies, and the problem here is not that there's money changing tables. The problem here is not that there's animals being sold uh, to people as they come into the temple to worship. That's very typical. In fact, that would be necessary and beneficial for everybody coming from all their different places around the region to come and worship in the temple and pay their temple tax and all these kinds of things. The problem is not the animals and the money changers, really. The problem is where they're located. They have set up their booths, and they have set up their stations where? In the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. That is what Jesus takes issue with, because the temple is supposed to be a place of worship. The temple, even the Gentile court, the most outer part of the temple, is supposed to be a place of distractionless worship, where authentic, devoted worship can take place. But here there's animals bleeding, there's animals making noises, there's hustle and bustle, all instead of worship. So Jesus, what's really, what's he getting at here? He wants all nations, all people to worship him without distraction, to worship God without distraction, to be able to approach God without distraction. And he wants the Jewish people here to care more about the worship of God, its authenticity and sincerity and purity than the commerce. In other words, here's what's driving Jesus. Here's what he really cares about. Here's what he's asking. Here's what he wants from us. He wants our whole selves. No reservations, no excuses, No limitations, no distractions, and this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, the Bible teaches, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus is showing us through this activity that God wants our whole selves, nothing off the table. He wants the Gentiles to be able to worship God fully. He wants the Jewish people to want, to, be, to want God to be worshiped more than any advantages in this moment. So Jesus plain and simple. He wants a relationship with us where there's no reservations, no excuses, and nothing off the table. Now, before that's, before, you might think that sounds intense. You might think that sounds like that's overboard, <laughs> but this is what every love relationship demands, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Uh, when, when two people get together, and they like each other, and they begin dating, and they head into marriage, they get engaged, and they become married, the trajectory of that relationship right? It intensifies. It intensifies in its commitment. It intensifies in its exclusivity. They have eyes only for one another, and what each person in that relationship demands of the other person is their total selves, everything. It intensifies over the course of the relationship until it's crystal clear moment, the climax of the whole process, which is that covenant they make with one another as they stand together on their wedding day. Every relationship wants this. This is what our hearts demand, and nothing less. Why is that? Why, why is that the trajectory of every relationship? And think about it. If one person in that relationship is not giving that full transparency, full accessibility, total self given to the other person, if one of those people isn't doing that, then there's pain. And then there's, there's harm done. And there's lack of trust. A relationship cannot thrive unless the whole self is given. All of us know that. All of us want that. All of us demand that. Why is that? It's because God is a relational being. God wants a relationship that is completely open, completely exclusive, completely committed to him. And we are made in his image and likeness. His fingerprints are on us because he is a relational being who wants the best quality kind of relationship there is. So then do we. It's just self-evident. So Jesus shows us simply what God wants. No distractions, no excuses, no reservations, withholding nothing, our whole selves, total devotion. 
Don't confuse devotion and perfection. Not perfection. We know that's not possible, and God, is, God, knows, the, God knows who he's getting into relationship with. But devotion, absolutely. That's what Jesus wants from us. But now what do we want from him? Let's look at this in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What are they doing here? What are they doing here in this question? They're telling Jesus that he needs to prove that he has the right to do such a thing. And notice, they're not, they're not condemning him for flipping the tables. They're not really even taking issue with what he's doing here. They're curious, and they ask him, okay, what's the basis of authority here? What gives you the warrant, the authority to, to do this, okay? Prove to us, Jesus, that you have the right to demand this kind of worship to God. Prove to us, Jesus, that you have the right to define worship and relationship on your terms and not on our terms. That's what they're asking for. Now look at verse 23. It expounds more on what they want from Jesus. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So apparently, John does not record every miracle and every event that takes place during this Passover week, but he does tell us that Jesus does miracles this week. He performs these signs. Apparently, he doesn't say no to their question. He does perform signs all throughout this week. And that sounds like, you know, okay, they believed in his name. It says, uh, so that's a good thing, right? Well, look what it says next in verses 24 and 25. Jesus, though, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Hmm. So we find out now the kind of belief that the people put in Jesus due to his signs. It's what? It's superficial at best. It's dedication on the basis of how far will Jesus go to make me happy. It's interest in Jesus as long as he benefits me, as long as he performs a sign, as long as he does things on my terms and in my timing. It's belief in his name as long as he accommodates. What we want from Jesus, what this shows, is we want the exact opposite of what he demands from us. We want strings attached. We want a way out. We have reservations. We want limits on our devotion. Jesus asks for no reservations, total worship on his terms, and we reply with, yeah, but. Jesus, I'll follow you and rejoice in you and love you if you give me success if you give me a relationship, if you give me relief from suffering, if you agree with my politics, if there's no disappointments, and on and on we go, we have these terms in our worship, on our love relationship, on our devotion with Jesus. We want him to go to these selective measures if we're going to include him in our life to the full measure that he wants. So, Jesus wants full devotion. We are not interested in that our terms, our measures, our limitations. So in this moment, John writes, here in this moment, during this week, Jesus did not entrust himself. But that's here in this moment, in this scene, what we know about the whole story, though. From the beginning to the end is what? That Jesus, he does give himself to us fully. In this moment, he might not give himself to them, but John makes it clear, although we have guarded our hearts from Jesus, he has not kept his heart from us. So here's how Jesus responds to our stubbornness, our limitations. Look at verse 19. They ask him for a sign, remember? What gives you the right, Jesus, to define worship? He doesn't say no. It says in verse 19, 
destroy this temple, this is Jesus talking, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Okay, so what does this mean? This is awfully cryptic. What's Jesus talking about here? And that's what they ask. Look at verses 20 through 22. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But listen here. This is what John and the disciples now uh, add in their commentary. They make it clear what Jesus is talking about. But he was speaking about the, bo- the temple of his body. Then therefore, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he didn't say no. He says, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it back up. It'll be raised back up. Not talking about the stone, brick, and mortar temple that was right before him, but talking about his own body. The sign that Jesus gives to prove that he has every right to ask of us, our whole selves, is the destruction of his own body in our place for us and the resurrection of his own body for us. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection to follow, is the sign that he gives us to persuade our hearts to have no reservations, to go all in. He has opened up his heart completely to us. Truly, no reservations, no limits, holding nothing back. He has made the initial first step and gone all the way through his death, burial, and resurrection to love us and give us entrance to relationship with him. He has gone all the way. That's how he's responded to our stubbornness, to our half-hearted love. So let's think about this. Jesus' death and his resurrection is the proof we need that Jesus is allowed to define the terms, that Jesus truly loves us, that Jesus is truly opening his heart to us. Let's think about this. The reason Jesus dies on the cross is why? To make atonement for our sin, which means to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin and injustice completely. There's no, no anger now. The only thing that God feels towards those who are his is love. There's nothing between God and us now but love because of Jesus' death on the cross. He absorbed every bit of God's wrath. What drove Jesus to the cross, though? What got him there? I mean, a terrible event, an awful, catastrophic event for Jesus, the destruction of his body. What drove him there? Now I want you to look at verse 17. Look what it says. This is after Jesus clears the temple. His disciples add this commentary and this statement in to, to teach us what was motivating Jesus. It says, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, that's from the Psalms. In, in the original context, in that original Psalm, in David's writing it, it's about himself. And David is saying that his passion His zeal for purity of worship in the temple has put him at odds with other people. That's what David is saying in that original psalm, and now they're applying it to Jesus, saying that just like David was passionate about worship and devotion to God, so much so that it put him at odds with his enemies, Jesus is even more passionate about worship, even more passionate about about devotion, so it put him at odds with these people. That's what it means in this moment, but think about this from a grander perspective. I think that's the baseline interpretation, but I think there's a fuller interpretation because what does the Bible say is the temple now? When Jesus dies and gives us forgiveness, there is now no longer any need for the temple. The temple's been, been uh, um, replaced by Jesus. He is now the meeting place between God and man. He is now the place where we worship God through. And so he is called in the New Testament, the temple. And when we have faith and trust in Jesus, and we unite ourselves to Jesus, do you know what the New Testament calls us? 
the temple too. We become a part of the temple. We are that new temple. So it is appropriate and right. The fullest interpretation of this verse, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Well, who, who is the new temple? We are. Passion for his people, zeal for his people, consume Jesus so much that he goes to the cross for us. That's the sign he gives. Passion for his people, so much so that it puts him on that Roman cross in our place. This is Jesus' act, his sign, his physical parable to prove to our hearts that drop your reservations, release your terms. I'm opening my heart completely to you in this wonderful act of, of grace. Relent to me, collapse into me. And then he not only says, destroy this body, he says it'll be raised up, the resurrection. Now, why is that important? And here's why. Because when Jesus dies and resurrects, that's God's stamp of approval on everything Jesus has ever done and everything Jesus has ever said. There would be no atonement. There would be no forgiveness. This wouldn't be an act of, of divine love. This would be an act of a madman <laughs> if we didn't have Jesus resurrected from the grave three days later with God the Father's own stamp of approval, verifying him and his work on our behalf. Now, you remember what every love relationship demands that I said at the beginning? What does every love relationship demand? Total and exclusive commitment and connection. No reservations. That is the best kind of relationship, the relationship that's going to thrive. So here's Jesus, who is asking everything from you to trust him, to go all in, to love him, to be devoted to him, but who has initiated and given everything first. We love why? Because he first loved us. He has opened his heart completely to you. Our hearts demand a love relationship that is total connectivity. Jesus has completely opened his heart to you. And what makes this even more incredible, what makes this even scandalous, is that we were the ones who snubbed him. We were the ones who gave him the cold shoulder. We are the ones who say, one more sign, Jesus. One more bit of proof, Jesus. Just go a few more steps and then I'll be convinced and I'll go all in. Jesus has looked past all those excuses, all those attempts to be half-hearted and he has opened his heart completely to each and every one of us by dying and resurrecting. Zeal for his house, his people consumes him. So that's why Jesus came, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our own terms, to save us from our own counterfeit worship to give us his own heart. So look, if you're here and you're seeking, I'm glad you're here. But here's my recommendation to you. Don't put off the greatest love relationship that will ever exist. Don't put off the greatest love that has been made known to you. Don't put it off. Jesus died for you. He was resurrected so you can have confidence that it's all real and it's all legitimate. Receive Jesus and become the temple, the people that he died for. There's many kids here, young people here. If you're here with your parents, listen up to me now, okay? This is really important. This, whether or not you're going to love Jesus and be devoted to him and go all in, this is a decision that you must make. Your parents can't make it for you. 
It's not something that you're just culturally integrated into. You have to make the decision yourself that Jesus is going to be your Savior, that Jesus is going to be your love relationship that's going to sustain you through your whole entire life. And look, you're going to come across all kinds of relationships in your life, but your relationship with God, young people, listen, your relationship with God is the most important relationship in your whole entire life. And so don't put off a good thing. Go all in. Now, if you hear you're a believer, okay, which is most of you, don't forget this one outstanding thing, that Jesus is consumed with zeal for you. That Jesus' heart is ignited with passion for you. So much so that he died for you while you were still his enemies. There is nothing that you can ever do that can take you out of God's love. There's nothing that you can ever do that can remove Jesus' love that he's placed on you. His heart is always open to you because that was never on the basis of your goodness or badness. That was always on the basis of Jesus' love decision to take that first step. We love because he first loved us. So the right response to this great love is not to treat it carelessly and to just assume it, presume it in a, in a casual way but to be also consumed by it, to be invited into the wonder and the awe of this outstanding love that he's given to you. The right response is to release your reservations and open now your heart to him. Worship and relationship on his own terms. Jesus has come to give us these things. And so friends, like I said last night, Christmas, it's one day a year that reminds us of what we can have for a lifetime. This sort of relationship with the one true God. He has made himself known through Jesus, and Jesus has gone all the way to show us that we can have that authentic love relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, who was born of a virgin, so that we can know that this birth, this human, is unlike any other. Thank you for sending him to live a life in the human experience so he can be tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin so that he can then transfer to us his blamelessness and righteousness so we can be completely forgiven and dressed in his righteousness, standing before you, God, a holy father, acknowledged as righteous, acknowledged as perfect, even though we're not, that we can always come before you, God. Not confidence in ourselves and our own doing, but confidence in Christ and in his doing. We pray, God, that this would be a day and a lifetime of worship to you on your terms. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.